and welcome back to Fox Podcast, the weekly pseudo-economic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-hosts, Wayne and Monica. How's it going, guys? Hey, Mav. Hey, Monica. It's finals week, Mav. Yeah. You know, it's going as good as it'll ever go on finals week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm halfway graded. School number one I'm done with, and then school two... And three are coming in today and tomorrow as we speak. So that's what I'm doing, too. I'm grading stuff. It's going to be big fun. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, other than the fact that uh, people do seem to have a little bit of thoughts about like some of the stuff that we said about like the Doctor Strange movie, which, you know, I, don't, I guess. Thanks for listening to the show. We'll see everything everywhere all at once. <laughs> I liked it better. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about something different. Yep. We're talking about yep. different more movies, not Doctor Strange. Not multiverses, at least I don't think so, but I guess maybe we'll see how maybe. it goes. <laughs> um, Monica, you wrote the blog. What are you talking about? Yeah, um, I'm going to be honest uh, because it's finals week that uh, we, I wouldn't say that we, we'll call it phoning it in, right? We'll call it preparation. We'll call it, uh, <laughs> right? There was a lot of free form thought as I was writing essay questions for uh, my kids' final exams because I've been teaching a documentary filmmaking class for the rest of the semester. And so I thought, well, it's not so much fun when you just, the thing about teaching is like, you just kind of talk to yourself. Sometimes you talk to the kids. Uh, usually you're just kind of talking to yourself, but I actually really loved teaching documentary, filmmaking, watching documentaries, being able to think more in depth about documentaries. And so I kind of thought we should do a show about documentaries and what actually makes a documentary. Because when you teach 15 weeks of documentary and you watch so many documentaries, um, you start to question what they all have in common with each other. Mm -hmm. You start to question uh, what is truth? What is what is reality? Not not so different from our multiverse conversation, but <laughs> very different than our multiverse conversation. So I thought we should invite some documentarians. Come talk about documentaries with us. Nice transition. And that's what I, we've done. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm a big documentary fan, but I've never worked on one. And oddly enough, both of you have. So, <laughs> um, so I've just I've just, I've seen a lot of them. I've taught some of them in class. So, you know, tell me. Who did you invite along? Monica, you, I mean, it was your thing. Who'd you invite? So I actually uh, invited the person who introduced me to my husband, uh, hmm. which is uh, not thing. at all. Yeah. Not at all relevant <laughs> to his uh, credentials as a documentarian, uh, but is I brought my friend Toby. Hello. Hi, Toby. Nice to meet you. Hey, Toby. Great meeting you guys. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. And Toby, so you make documentaries. Is it anything that we might have seen? Uh, yes, there's a, there's one that you might have seen um, that you should have seen, really. But um, Gaming Wall Street uh, is on HBO Max, and it's a financial documentary that just came out about two and a half months ago. Mm -hmm. I watched it last week, so... <laughs> um, Almost as though I knew I was doing a show. <laughs> Which I might have texted the group chat. I'm bringing my friend Toby. He yes. made a movie called Gaming Wall Street. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll talk about that. 
in as much as we're going to talk about a whole bunch of other stuff. But Wayne, you also brought a documentarian. I did. Um, I I met Julie Sokolow, and I, I hope after all this time I'm saying your name correctly on the program. Tough, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever said it out loud before. Um, I, I met Julie at Phantom the Attic, the store I worked at, uh, through mutual friends, and, and we struck up a friendship. And a few years later, Julie was making a documentary completely at random on someone I know very well, and as mm-hmm. a result, invited me to be part of the of the movie. So I am in one of Julie's documentaries. And um, so that's that's my connection there. But Julie, hi, welcome to the show. Why don't you tell us about Hello. your documentaries? Hi, Julie. Yeah, I actually think it's pretty cool that you're host here, Wayne, is a documentary subject. I mean, you need to be grilling him. Uh, yeah, I have a story so, about that, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, hi, I'm Julie. Uh, I've directed three documentary features and edited them as well. Uh, and I've directed a bunch of short films and a web series. Um, and yeah, so the film we were just talking about is called Aspie Seeks Love. And it's about David Matthews, who not, you know, the musician, but <laughs> a guy who lives in, yeah. <laughs> but a guy named David Matthews who lives in Pittsburgh, who spent 20 years trying to find love by posting personal ads to telephone poles looking for a partner. And this is like kind of before online dating. Uh, and then he got uh, diagnosed with Asperger's late in life. And so I follow him um, on this journey to kind of like understand himself, find love and publish his first book. And Wayne uh, is featured as a subject in the film talking about what David was like as his college buddy. Uh, mm-hmm. so it's pretty, pretty fun. That movie. Yeah. First one, first, first feature. Yeah. And, and, and it's, are they all available on Amazon prime or different places? I know. Yeah, they're, they're all there. on Amazon. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. I, and you know, the experience of doing that with you, just the experience of being in one, you made that very comfortable. I mean, you just came over to the house and we talked and obviously it helped that I already knew you and you and had some connection with it, but it, it was fun kind of seeing that process, not only here, but at some of the public events that we went to and, and filmed and then seeing the whole thing come together. I'm going to say straight up, not just because I'm in it. It's a very well done documentary. It is. I, it is. <laughs> I, I mean, I've, I've seen it as well. And the first time I saw Aspie Seeks Love, uh, Wayne and I were doing a conference that uh, we, we were doing together on a conference on uh, writing and filmmaking and you know, and, basically and, and why we were invited and neither one of us can tell you. No, well, <laughs> I, I mean, in a lot of ways, we were basically doing the kinds of stuff that we do on this show every week. Right. And I think you were on two panels and I was on three and we finished yeah. earlier in the day. And then the woman organizing the the conference was like, okay, well, you know, enjoy the rest of the show. You know, see, see as much stuff you want. And by the way, we're doing some screenings at the theater down the street. We've got like these four films that we're screening and here's what they are. And one of them is this documentary. And we've got the guy who's in the documentary is going to do, um, is going to do a Q and a after it, after it. And it's a documentary about a guy with Asperger's trying to find love. And Wayne's like, what's the guy's name? And then she says, and Wayne's like, yeah, I think I'm in that movie. I did. completely random. Right. So, so then, so Wayne ended up on another panel. Cause he's like, well, you know, do you want, 
want to be in the Q&A? It's like, yes. Which I, it's which, amazing. Of course. Which, <laughs> yeah, I like, ended up kind of moderating it, mm-hmm. uh, which, which was helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, it was a, so, so that was, um, that, that was an interesting, um, <laughs> but that's the first time I saw that one. And I watch a lot of documentaries. Um, so much like when Monica, when you got uh, the job teaching this class, you're like, does anybody have recommendations for documentaries that I might teach? And I'm like, here are 30. You know? <laughs> like, I, I was super it's like, I'm not teaching this class, but I have, I have many, many thoughts. So, so um, I guess first question, you know, for everybody, what's a documentary? <laughs> because you, you, you pointed at it. You like, you said, what even makes it a documentary? And I don't think that it's, um, I don't think that it's as clear cut as thing that shows up on PBS, which is what it would have been like when I was, you know, yeah. 10, like when I was a kid, documentaries were the things that show up on PBS that aren't masterpiece theater or Sesame street. That's what yeah. they were. It was yeah. everything else. And, and they were very serious. Yes. Very. And like, not, like not even Ken burn serious. It was just very, you know, they're, um, uh, yeah, either a man with a very deep voice who would talk very slow or you'd have a British guy like it yeah, had to be right, one of the yeah. two because it had the, those are the only people who sound smart. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, for me, I always thought like documentaries were like the most boring thing imaginable and I would never want to make one. And also like the liability issues were just like, why would you want to deal with that and get sued? And like when I was like a kid, I was just like, mm-hmm. that sounds yeah. like a terrible profession. Um, but actually, I think when I was like 16, I saw The Devil and Daniel Johnson, uh, a fantastic, you know, character driven documentary about this wonderful artist um, and dealing with like his mental health stuff and his family and just the the intimate warmth of it. I love that film if if anyone else has seen it. Um, And I was like, oh, documentaries can do that. They can feel like real movies. And so that kind of blew my mind. And of course, that movie is like almost 20 years old now. So I'm dating myself here but uh and now like looking at what documentaries have kind of become like there's so much more in that direction of entertainment is so expected now and mm-hmm. i'm curious what toby has to say about that um you know i wouldn't have considered myself a documentary filmmaker about a year and a half ago um <laughs> i've worked on a lot of documentaries uh, as a cinematographer i've been as a producer i've done short documentaries as a director never feature length never tv um and uh, during the pandemic, I worked on uh, two things, um, one for the NAACP, that was a short, and one for a group of makers, people that were building masks and face shields all around the world. Mm-hmm. Both of them involved a lot of footage collection and editing, but most of them were found footage, quote unquote, right? We would ask people to either send us their stuff or use their existing stuff or shoot something for us, all on phones, all pandemic style. Um, and there was something really cool about taking uh, information that uh, was out there, but nobody ever connected it and made it meaningful and making it meaningful, right? And I think that's sort of at the core of a documentary, right? Like we had this great documentary class when I was in college um, where we talked a lot about these fluid lines between truth and fiction and mm-hmm. um, uh, what is a documentary, right? Like what are the rules? And I would say the rules of, you know, like Julie said, become more and more fluid over time but i think at the core of it it's always about using information and making it meaningful to some degree right and that totally goes into the fictional space right many fictional movies use and information being like real information not made up stuff Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's sort of 
you know, the way that we had it defined in college, I think, was something along the lines of uh, using documents, i.e. information, and somehow turning them into an entertaining juxtaposition and a, uh, a sort of a sequence of information that then becomes meaningful and creates a story out of nothing. Or you tell the story through the use of documents like interviews and, and actual scans of, of old papers or whatever. <laughs> And I feel like ever since the streaming era and Netflix sort of reinvigorating the genre and I think a lot of narrative filmmakers coming over to the doc space or doc filmmakers being like, you know what, let's do what Michael Moore did. Like, let's just mm -hmm. blow up those definitions and let's think about commercialization and uh, making money with this stuff and getting audiences interested in it, even if they don't care about the subject. And I think that's sort of the... Uh, this current renaissance of documentaries that's gone through so many renaissances and different iterations of what's acceptable and not and what's okay and what's not. Um, but yeah, I feel like the current, uh, the current culture of what is a documentary is very accepting, uh, very broad. You can do recreations, you can make up stuff, you can tell the truth, you can tell your own version of the truth, like Werner Herzog. You know, it was really funny. I remember... Sorry, yeah? No, I, I was just going to add, you mentioned Michael Moore. Do you think he is he is the figure that changed all that in the public opinion or, or changed uh, the way people thought of documentaries? Can we pinpoint it that specifically? I would Maybe love to most... actually argue it's not Michael Moore, but I put it more with the Mela's brothers and Grey Gardens in the 70s. Like yeah. for me, it's the the approaching yeah. of the subject with this sense of irony in which you feel like the audience is a little bit more of there's always there's always the question of spectacle within documentary. Right. And it's sort of existed mm -hmm. since the beginning of the documentary form, especially when you think about something like Nanook of the North and these very ethnographic films in which you assume that the audience is white and identifies differently than the people who are being viewed. And Grey Gardens is one in which you have white subjects, but the audience is sort of supposed to laugh at them or be interested in the spectacle of them rather mm -hmm. than um, the the looking as things are, which yeah. I feel like is the very like purest idea of what a documentary is, is that like whether we want to argue the idea that there's no such thing as a as a fact or yeah. that subjectivity itself is a fact. But I, I feel like Grey Gardens is this really important moment of how the audience is being asked to think about the subject that for me feels very similar to a Michael Moore style mm. and feels very similar even to like, I'm going to go Tiger King style, right? Where like mm -hmm. you are expected to sort of be laughing at the people who are on screen. Mm. Well, and I, I framed it that way and I haven't studied this the, the way you have to have some of that background, but like in my life of watching documentaries, he seemed to be a tipping point of, oh, documentaries are a thing. You know, so, it's like it, it, that seemed to be a much more public kind of thing. But once again, that's my perception as, you know, the unwashed public. Well, OK, so for a halfway spot for me, again, I've not professionally made any, but I was a creative writing major in college and um, uh, screenwriting concentration that I never did anything with it. Right. But I took a class on writing documentaries where Michael Moore was a big part of this in I was probably 1993 when I took this class. So it's quite a while ago. Um, but we watched Roger and Me, um, mm -hmm. which was one of his one of his earlier films. Is it his earliest one? I think it might actually be the first one. It, it is one. sort of his breakout. It's film. the first yeah. one. Well, but one one of the things that I think makes more interesting is 
not so much that he's inventing the format, but that he becomes a rock star. Yeah. Michael Moore comes up in the same period of time. He he breaks big in the same period of time as Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith. Um, and they're where it's sort of a this is the cool, you know, the cool thing that these kids, you know, at the time. Look, Gen X is making movies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> these Gen X kids are making some movies. And he did the one that was a documentary. And it's interesting because he's you know, the documentary is seen as this stuffy thing, I think, in 1989. But he kind of he kind of did it like it was like it was not stuffy. And with Roger and me, Roger and me I really opened my eyes taking that class when I watched it. And then I I picked up on while he's taking class where he's he's um he's got two central conceits that are in this movie and every Michael Moore movie. First off, the center of the universe is Flint, Michigan. Everything else, <laughs> nothing else matters. But beyond that, like aside from the center of the universe being Flint, Michigan, he has a point where he interviews this woman about how the plant closed and she lost her house and blah, 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 blah. And he goes on for, it's a good six or seven minute segment, but she, he never asked that woman if she worked at the plant. And if you do the research, you'll find out she didn't. Now, obviously, um, Flint, Michigan was entirely dependent on, you know, like the economy was hurt by them. So certainly they might've caused part of the recession that cost this woman her job, but they didn't fire her. She never worked there. (laughs) And he never says that. And it's just this highly manipulative moment. That made me go, oh, my God, documentaries are so cool because you can do that. Right. Um, but but like I start seeing from that movie that like you are you're not telling a history book the way that I thought of documentaries before then you're telling a story and then it becomes a creative endeavor. And then I, you know, I'll compare that to something that I watched later. And one of my another of my all time favorites is. When We Were Kings, which is uh, Muhammad Ali, the story of the Rumble in the Jungle, which I think is brilliant. And it's just like that. That's just a movie. It's a sports movie. It's a sports movie. It's barely a documentary. I mean, you're supposed to watch it and feel good about yourself the same way you feel when you watch Rocky or Bad News Bears. <laughs> but you, but it's real. And so things like that, I think, kind of start happening around then. But I don't know if anybody, any one person invents it. But I think we hit this point where it became popular for a minute and then it went dormant. And I think it's becoming popular again now. I think there is also this shift that I've seen of um, there's really this idea of is this are you pursuing the like the idea of a truth and a, a thing that you want the audience to walk away with at the onset of your film? Or did you create a film with a hypothesis and then you allowed the actual filmmaking process to lead you in one direction or the other? Because I would argue that that's sort of the thing that borders us in between documentary and spectacle or documentary and propaganda is this idea of did you let the truth guide your story versus did you have a truth that you wanted other people to accept when they watched it? Uh, as the original, like originating creative intention as the director and as the filmmaker. And I would love to hear from our guests who are actual documentarians about their (laughs) process of finding the story. If we are Mm -hmm. acknowledging that this is very much a creative artistic process that has a narrative that can be written to the point that you can take a documentary writing class in college. Well, 
It is really interesting. I mean, I've done a lot of different kinds of documentaries. So uh, one of my projects was a web series called Healthy Artists. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's about like 30 different portraits of artists around Pittsburgh who are like painters, comedians, musicians, like any kind of artist you could think of. And each little three to five minute portrait is the the person kind of talking about their artwork, um, doing like a little show and tell. Uh, and then talking about their healthcare situation and like usually about how they're uninsured or underinsured. Um, so it's kind of hitting on that Michael Moore sicko, you know, mm-hmm. why are we the only, you know, industrialized nation without universal healthcare? Um, so that there was a tie in to the fight for uh, single payer healthcare. And even though we filmed the series in Pittsburgh, we ended up getting like picked up by the New York Times as um featured rather on their like their art section so it goes to show how like you can make films in a tiny town and you know kind of uh if there's a universal relevance it can kind of resonate elsewhere but with that like I certainly had an agenda like I had a point of view going into Mm -hmm. that and I also had this community of other you know artists in town who I knew as friends and who I was going out and filming with and uh, always kind of saw filmmaking for me as just like this scrappy young artist who barely knew what I was doing when I started uh, as just kind of this like experimental collaboration thing. Uh, and I kind of carried that attitude into making my first feature, Aspie Seeks Love, uh, where David, as I was telling you uh, about him, he reached out to me on Facebook and he was just like, hey, I see you make movies. Would you make one about me? And I was like, okay, <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> and you know we met for coffee and I loved his sense of humor he has just this very like dry delivery and uh he felt like a Daniel Close you know character to me yes. like out of Ghost which, World which or is, something which is exactly what he has wanted to be since I've known him yes <laughs> he's achieved he, it he, he was reading Lloyd Llewellyn before anybody else was reading Lloyd Llewellyn early Dan Klaus comic and it's like oh this is this is who you want to be <laughs> yes yes and and I guess what I'll just say about that is like as I was making the film with David and like, he's an artist, he's a writer, he's a visual artist. Like he's, you know, he loves films and he kind of like knew about storytelling as we were making this film together and he's the subject. And there were times where we were like, Oh, as part of this movie, maybe you should put out a book, you know? So like, and I'm his friend and I like set him up with a friend of mine who's like in the movie, they're on a date together. So like, obviously this is not like fly on the wall. Right. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I was very much like his friend and partly like an advocate for him throughout Mm -hmm. the film and onward. And I kind of carried that into a more like professional role of like, friend and advocate um with other subjects that i filmed later on uh like i am invested i'm not neutral yeah well that's a question i want to ask then for for you julie because if you're i think we often think of documentaries and i don't mean we the people on the show today i mean as a people like people sort of go i've heard people say well that documentary they're lying or that wasn't the truth or anything but you said something very particular when you started you said you had an agenda and it's not like you don't mean that nefariously i've seen the film the agenda of Aspie Seeks Love is pretty much, I just want to show that David's an okay person. Like, like let's mm. the, the more, the yeah. moral of the moral of the story is this is a good dude. He's a little weird, but he's good. Like that's the entire point. And yeah, it's endearing. Yeah. It's an endearing story. So I like when you say you have an agenda, I don't think that you're trying to claim that you're not objective. I think there is a truth to it, but like, 
there there's a question of objectivity versus subjectivity that at least for the kind of documentary you made and I'm going to I want to contrast this slightly with Toby's but only slightly when it, when we in a moment I don't think that that's as viable a question as we like to pretend it is you know is this subjective <laughs> or objective it's you know the answer is is it objective I don't know it's David's truth you know is yeah. <laughs> you know that's right. that is I mean cuz I've met him that's who that dude is and he's nice and the Yeah and I'll, I'll just say right. one more thing yeah. too and we'll then we'll kick it to Toby. Toby, but uh, yeah, I maybe agenda is the wrong word, but I have a point no, I think of view. It's right. Yeah, I, 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 I have <laughs> yeah. a point of view, and mm-hmm. you know, because the films that I do are like uh, very character driven and very intimate films, and like I want the people who I collaborate with to end up in like the same or better position after we make a mm-hmm. film versus worse. Like I really care about that, <laughs> like more than I care about an audience liking my work. Um, mm-hmm. So. At the end of the day, like I want to make something that we're all sort of proud of as folks who've like worked on the film. And I, I choose documentary subjects with that in mind. I, you know, I pick people who I admire, who I like, who I want to spend two years making a film with. Uh, and I but like, I'm not going to make a film about Dick Cheney. I'm just not going to, you know, I only make movies about people I like. All right. Enough yeah, for me. That's fair enough. I think that's interesting, right? Because it's not sidestepping the question of agenda. It's you're being honest about it. It's not like the movie pretends to go we are going to uncover the secrets of David Matthews and see what he is. That's not what it is, right? Like, like it, it is very much a, we're going to watch this young man at the time and his quest for love. And by the way, he's a little different than other people, but what is different really? And that's kind of, you know, it, it is, it's what I would do if I were writing a novel as well, right? So the reason I wanted to ask that question is because now I want to contrast that slightly with Toby's most recent film, because I also watched that this week. and. It's weird because you have very much a newsworthy subject in a documentary that I think sort of is news in that it is a current event, like by definition, therefore news. But I wouldn't say it's neutral either. And in fact, it's hella creative. Is that fair? Oh, I mean, I'll take the compliments. Um, uh, yeah, I would. I would totally agree. You know, when I first learned about documentaries as a viewer, my understanding was always like, oh, a documentary simply like recounts something that really happened or somebody that really exists, you know, like portrays them. Um, The more that I have learned and especially the more that I've done, the more all my sort of, I would even say like somewhat naive uh, assumptions about it have sort of all been put to the test. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest um, difference that I've seen in myself and my perception of what I think documentaries are is um, uh, when I read Werner Herzog, like whatever, nearly 10 years ago now or nine, and he has this whole like Minnesota declaration and he's like, there is no such thing as objective truth. There's only ecstatic truth and basically ecstatic Mm -hmm. truth is like your own subjective perception of truth. I was like, well, that's total bullshit. Like, this guy is crazy. Um, and uh, now, having done the doc, I'm like, he's 100% right. <laughs> totally. Yes. Um, and the, the reason for my, uh, you know, complete 180 on on Herzog, and I love the guy. He's, like, so insane. He's, like, the craziest German guy that I know, um, is uh, when you make these things, especially when they get very complex. You know, I totally agree there with, with Julie, right? Like, um, uh, I, I haven't seen your movie, Julie, but I 
totally get where this like portraying a real person that you also kind of become friends with right like it's not like you're this objective outside observer like you're completely a subject that is involved in their lives right and then things like tiger king was like are these people ever going to talk to you again after you release the doc because you kind of make them look crazy or maybe they make themselves look crazy um so there's all these like weird lines of uh, truth and representation and i think um as you built this uh this thing right like a current event like gamestop there's like eight different documentaries on the gamestop event and they're all different they're all from a different point of view they're from a different filmmaker and it's a great case study in how one singular event can have so many different interpretations through the lens of a filmmaker in a documentary um and many of them share similar things right but uh, everybody takes a certain position like how pro or anti wall street are you mm-hmm. and i think you can go into a project with a point of view or with an assumption like oh wall street is terrible oh i hate the financial media whatever um you go in there right but then there will be many moments where you will be faced with having to question your own assumption and mm-hmm. where you have to question your own sort of loyalties like who are you going to perform this for is it for these people or for those people who are going to make happy who's going to be upset about what they're going to see all these questions are going to go through your head um and i feel like some of these early documentaries that i watched like ticket fall is you know it's like it's like fly on the wall in a mental uh, health institution and like very crazy conditions um there was always this like oh you know the filmmaker just showed up they turned on the camera then they <laughs> sat there and then somehow it turned into a movie right and there was this sort of illusion that was like object uh, like mm-hmm. a great example of objectivity and i think it's it's all on a spectrum you know between trying to be as objective as possible and then trying to be as subjective as possible. And I feel like Michael Moore is very comfortable on a subjective thing, right? And with my own experience making Gaming Wall Street, I tried to stay objective when I felt like that was the appropriate thing to do. And I became more subjective when I felt that was the appropriate thing to do. And I would say that mm-hmm. every single decision in my doc, and I'm sure it's the same for you, Julie, is like so intentional. There's no accidents at all. There's no like random, oh, I didn't realize that my documentary was saying X because you sit there for like, you know, hundreds of hours debating it (laughs) with your editor, with your friends, with your producer, with your writers, with your story producer, whoever you have there, uh, studio, network, um, production company, what have you. Everything gets scrutinized, right? And you make these decisions very deliberately. So I wouldn't say that it's necessarily like an agenda to go and like, fuck with somebody's brain and like make them believe in something different because they're going to watch your doc and like suddenly it's going to rip the curtain off their eyes but it's more like what what do you what do you hope to get out of the story and then what does the story actually lend to you right and there was multiple moments where it was very seductive to um tell the story that was the most convenient you know the story that kind of was close to the truth but was such a perfect little um you know the story came in a bow but I knew that that was not really the truth. You know, mm-hmm. there was a total simplification of the truth. Or I was kind of throwing something else out the window that I knew that was contradicting that. But if I left it in, the story would not be as convenient. Like the villain wouldn't be as clear and that sort of stuff, right? So you're completely faced with this weird balancing of, you know, the ethics of how true can the story be? Because if you want to have the whole truth, you're going to have to just watch 80 hours of interviews and 20 <laughs> hours of archival 
and another hundred hours or so of found footage. Right? Mm-hmm. That's the truth, if you will. That what you're getting is about two hours worth of stuff. So clearly, all the choices that we made on what we cut out is a huge uh, impact on on what I perceive to be true in the sense of um, you know uh, serving the subjects of the story to represent their intentions truthfully even if it is oversimplifying it for the necessity of runtime. Toby, That's I think a beautiful way a, of putting it, Toby. Yeah. Yeah. Toby, I, I think you make a really good point of this Um, one of the things that's really like a hallmark of the postmodern era is this idea that like, there's really no such thing as truth any anymore. And it's almost the, the fact that now we have streaming that like Ken Burns is always like held up as this hallmark of the fact that like he was allowed to do nine hours of baseball and civil war and, (laughs) uh, or, but also like now that we have streaming, it's, it's nine episodes of the staircase. It's nine episodes of everything in terms Mm -hmm. of like, it almost presents as like, it is this greater truth because you were able to do the deep dive versus the, the one hour standalone film. And I think that you're really bringing up like this really important thing, which is this, like, it's still not because that was still edited out of hundreds and hundreds of our hours of interviews and archival that, so, which leads me to want to ask, especially, um, because you guys have talked both about choosing to do things that are not might have multiple parts to them. Like what is the point in which you decided that it wouldn't be standalone and that it would have multiple parts to it? Um, so I'll, I'll do it a two part. The first one is to the question of truth with a very pragmatic answer, by the way, uh, there is a total truth filter by the end of editing when you send it to the lawyers and they all go and they <laughs> check the shit out of it. Like, it is such, you have never seen email chains this long, you know, and it's the most random things that are being fact checked. Like we have a character who got a divorce and it's like, do we have his divorce papers? It's like, well, I didn't ask him for his divorce papers. I just believe that he was divorced. <laughs> but sometimes it's very technical. They're like, can you send us the Robin Hood deposit of XYZ at this date and like blah, blah, blah. And so there's a true filter of like, what are you representing is true or not, right? It's mostly about selecting information rather than um, actually telling falsehood. So I, I would say, you know, we can talk about this more, but there, there is a thing called truth. that's just sort of a limit that everybody's trying to reach and never quite gets there. Mm-hmm. But second answer on why multiple parts and do multiple parts create greater truth. I would say to some degree, right? Like if you have more detail in the story, you automatically will have more nuance because you will have more time to dive into every single sub story. And, you know, the reality is much more gray than black and white. Um, in our case, it was much more, I would say, um, a you know commerce-driven uh, decision that uh, docu-series have just become a popular format. People enjoy being able to take a break. And that subject that we picked is so incredibly dense. You know, it's like hardcore finance, um, the most complicated financial transactions you can really do in, in uh, securities, um, uh, uh, many of which Wall Street insiders that have worked there for 25 years years are either not familiar with or still don't understand. Uh, and we have to make it approachable to an audience where some of the people don't even know what the stock market is. And we have to tell them these super complicated kind of things. So because we picked such a dense subject, um, having multiple episodes is great for 
both intellectual, emotional, um, and sort of maybe you could argue truth-bound breathing room where an audience member can choose to say, okay, you know what, I'm going to take a break. I'll watch the rest tomorrow. So then you have a full night sleepover and kind of think about it, slow down, be like, okay, I'm fully ready again. You know, you've got my brain. Let's go. Um, which I think is an incredibly important part. Uh, Julie, I don't know what, uh, what your experience is uh, like there, but you have to kind of map out like when the audience is maxed out. And you're like, okay, we've got to take a freaking breather. Like this was so dense. <laughs> this was so sad. This was so funny. Now let's go and like reset the emotional or, or storytelling to it, right? And so that's nothing about truth. That's all about the human experience of the audience. Absolutely, yeah. And I think for me, uh, you know, I've made three features and that's just a personal decision based on like that creative constraint of like 70 to 90 minute movie is good for my brain. Like, cause I know I, I'm going to have a hundred hours of footage to dig through anyway. So if I'm like, this has to be 90 minutes, like it's somehow it's a manageable container. I and I've just never really even thought about myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I have a 90 minute movie of Wayne speaking. <laughs> in Everyone, everyone I talk to, because I love like yeah. whenever I'm like filming someone, I get so excited too to just chat, like probably like you guys do on your podcast before you know it, you have two hours, right? Yeah. So, oh, yeah, yeah, easily. Yeah. So it's just a manageable container. And I think it's just like the romance of cinema and the movie theater and the film festivals. Like it's just kind of the vehicle that I've wanted to tell my stories. And um, I think the, the main question for me has just been like, feature length film or short film? Uh, like, is there enough here for a feature? And uh, occasionally I've had to ask that uh, and usually decided there was enough for the, for the features I'm thinking of, right? I knew right away which way it was going to go, but I've had yeah. to justify that to producers on occasion. Mm -hmm. I wonder, I kind of want to dovetail back into a question Monica had asked before about the postmodern nature of truth. And uh, this is something I was thinking about with Toby's film. To the extent that you take a side, and I mean, Julie's film is very much a, this is a portrait of an individual. Uh, Toby's film's not. Toby's film's about several people. And you follow along people who are investing in GameStop. And I mean, I guess you had, you didn't really seem to have as much access to um, the hedge fund guys as I'm sure you would have liked. But, you know, there's some of that, right? And then there's investigators and there's, there's, there's a lot. And I'd say that if the movie takes a side, to the extent that it takes a side, it's mostly on the side of the little guy, right? You're not, you're not going, yeah, go big capital hedge fund guys. That's not what the movie does. The movie is very much on the side of, of, of the, of the little guys who are trying to just like sort of, you know, make something in a, in a problematic system. But the film very, it, it, it very much presents the narrative of, you know, did Robin Hood do something wrong? Did Robin Hood do something wrong? Was there collusion? And then there's a moment which I think is absolutely fascinating in the second episode of the film where you basically or Karen Calkin, who's the narrator, who's, by the way, very good at this, um, but basically says, yeah, Robin Hood turning off the buy button probably saved the American economy. And I was like, what? Whoa, hold on. And then you, you is that true? You even acknowledge maybe. And here's the here's the argument. And you you present this. What I'd say is probably an unpopular view, but pretty interesting. And I think that's sort of what makes this format interesting to me 
from an academic pursuit, right? Like how do I do whether it's this show or whether it's an academic article, right? If I'm, do, if I'm saying something interesting, if I'm doing like the, our PCA papers a couple weeks ago, where I'm saying it's very important to make porn out of children's stories or, you know, <laughs> like, which is, which is what my argument was for, for PCA. I know I'm saying something that's a little weird and controversial, but investigating that story is interesting, even though it's a weird subject thing. So how do you how do you manage that? Like when what makes you ask questions like that, I guess, is the is the thing, because I when, when you said it, I sort of buy the argument that you're making. I understand why it was important for Robin Hood to not allow the American um, stock market to completely go under. Um, I, you know, I'm a nihilist. So if I probably would have said if it happens, eh, you know, let the world burn. But that's just because I'm a crazy person. I understand the point that they were making. How do you yeah. decide what you want to what you want to say? Uh, a very, very, uh, um, you know, thorough question and observation. So um, it's kind of a complicated uh, thing that uh, a bunch of the things that he mentioned kind of come together to arrive at that place. So for one, we actually had incredible access to um, the main hedge fund guy. Oh, did you? I, oh, I wasn't sure because he's yeah. not he's not in it as much as some other people. So it, it wasn't oh, clear how much had, you had. Out. We had him in there a lot in the edit. And <laughs> John is one of the producers, so okay. I you know I, I chat with him, I talk on the phone, I show up at his place of work. Um, we've built a really mm -hmm. great friendship. Uh, we're working on other projects together now. Okay. So the interesting thing with the GameStop story is right that the main narrative comes from the the little guy, the underdog, the individual investor mm -hmm. um, against the hedge fund manager, the big bad evil uh, Wall Street uh, overlord, right? And so that's sort of the setup that I entered this world into. And the short sellers, the Wall Street guys, were the bad guys. Mm -hmm. the, the deeper that I went, the more I'm like, oh, Wall Street is not just one. A shapeless blob, there's all these different people in there and all these different people that represent very different things, right? They all might be hedge fund managers, but every single one of them has a completely different code of ethics, completely different way of looking at the world. Some of them are bigger enemies with each other than a little guy will ever be with one of them okay. right? because a little guy with one of them might never want to do as much damage to them as they want to do to each other. So it's sort of, it's just like a giant mosh pit of very professional, you know, deeply experienced people, and then a giant mosh pit for a bunch of less experienced people that want to take part in it. Um, mm -hmm. So to some degree, this, you know, uh, good versus evil is way more complicated and there's way more factions and more sides. It's not just team blue and team red kind of thing. Um, so that was sort of one of the first first pieces. And then um, I tried for a very long time to avoid having a narrator in this. Uh, mm -hmm. And I was very keen on it. And all the editors, you know, there are people that were nominated for Emmys. There are people that really know their stuff. Off that edit much better and faster than I do. Uh, they were all like, Toby, stop doing it. You need a narrator. Like, you just accept it now. And HBO was very nice. They're like, you know, would you consider maybe having a narrator down the line? And <laughs> Powder was like that. And uh, Tessa, my producer, was like that. And so um, there was a lot of pressure to bring on a narrator. And I was always like, no, I don't want to have a narrator. Why? Really? Because just like in academia, right? Like, imagine somebody publishes a paper and says, this is the definitive opinion whether God exists. Mm -hmm. Right? There is no such thing, right? Like, you can forever and ever publish papers on the existence of God and nobody will ever prove somebody right or wrong. Even if you have a data point, right? Like you can say, I can predict the weather 350 days into the future and you will most likely be wrong because <laughs> even though there are data points, it's so impossible to predict that, lo that level of future, that level of complexity. It's very similar with the stock market. The stock market mm -hmm. is so complex, so difficult to understand that there's not really any credible person that can claim that they truly understand all of it. It does not matter how far up the power chain you go. It does not matter 
how big of an office you have in the government, in the largest banks in the world. Nobody truly gets all of it, right? And therefore, mm-hmm. having a narrative that's a voice of God to me always felt false because it pretended like we knew it all. And so that's why we very carefully then, once they floated the idea of Kieran Culkin, I was it's like, so oh, great. this could be a fucking character, right? This could be <laughs> an actual uh, sort of um, participant, whether it's not a real person that's in the actual movie, but we can kind of understand that this guy's sort of involved in it and he understands some stuff and he has some insider knowledge and he wants to spill the beans. I was like, oh, that works, right? Mm-hmm. And so with Kieran... He also sounds used. Up, like just, yeah, totally. his delivery... His delivery makes it clear that he doesn't know everything, and exactly. it, he he makes the film. So <laughs> I thought he was great in it because he doesn't have like a classic. Like it wouldn't have worked if you'd gotten Morgan Freeman, right? Like it would have been too, it would have been too smart. 100%. That was that was my that was my concern, right? Like Morgan mm-hmm. Freeman would have said, "And this is what happened," and mm-hmm. that is just not true, right? Because nobody truly knows what happened with Robin Hood except for the guys inside of Robin Hood. And I asked them, and they were not going to talk. Um, and even the guys of Robin Hood don't really know what happened when they got that letter in the morning because they don't really know what those people said in the boardroom. And those people that said that in the boardroom at the DTCC, nobody really knows what caused the thing on the day before and so on and so forth, right? So it's just an endless chain of everybody always having just a small piece of the puzzle. And we were certainly not going to pretend like we had it all figured out. Um, But we knew what things were most likely and what was probable. And uh, we used a lot of insider knowledge and talking with people, you know, and sort of the back rooms of um, the very posh restaurants at night that dim lights and saying, you know, what are the crimes that you have committed? And they will just like give it all out on the table and say, I did this, I did that, <laughs> la la la. And by the way, this other guy did this as well. Um, awesome. So we used a lot of that information that obviously is not in the dock to right, right. Uh, then inform our representation of truth, what we felt was the most probable um, uh, way that something happened. And, uh, you know, to maybe finish it up, um, the the story is somewhat from obviously the point of view of the little guy, because that's the average person, that's the viewer, right? But um, many people that are the little guy in the sense or the little girl that are in the stock market and are, are invested, they wanted a hype video. They wanted something that says, go buy GameStop, right? And it's just going to be two hours of a GameStop infomercial. That's what a lot of people wanted. And I felt like as a filmmaker, one, I felt that was not really ethical, but two, what people explicitly want is probably not always what they really need. And what right. I felt what we were making is what people needed, right? It was answers to really yeah. complicated questions, or at least something that eliminated other answers by saying, this is much more probable than that. Um, and here's some sort of solace that you can have and some sort of, not necessarily closure, right? Like nobody's really moved on from this. Everybody's still pretty, pretty involved in gung ho. It's much more like you can put certain things behind you and then look forward rather than back. Mm-hmm. I think I turn to Monica and Wayne here because this is that this is a little different because we're not doing. Uh, well, actually, maybe that's the question. I don't think we're doing a documentary when we make this show. Right. But we have this discussion a lot, like when we when we're writing blogs and stuff, when we're editing the show, it's always a question of, you know, ha, uh, if we say this, it's going to piss off people. But it's it, <laughs> this show is always very intentional. And my work, you know, as an academic has always very intentionally been, I'm not going to just say whatever the common, you know, woke opinion is, even though that is me, right? Like I'm going to be uber liberal, but sometimes I'm going to say stuff that's going to piss people off. Uh, you know, sometimes Monica and I are both going to like massively hate power of the dog. <laughs> and people are like, what's wrong with you? Why do you hate gay people? I'm like, well, 
I don't. I hate this really bad movie. Um, <laughs> but like, that's what happened, right? Or with Doctor Strange this last weekend, right? Like, we didn't like it. Sorry. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I, I guess I get that you're, I get you're doing that. But I mean, that does lead me back to our original question of what's a documentary then, right? Because well, at that point, you're just making a, you're, you're telling your story, mm, which is, I, it's not news, you know. I, I, moving this out of film for a minute i you know thinking about this as we're talking going back to the project i've mentioned here yes yeah hoods pal you know like i'm i'm essentially documenting these people's lives they are real life stories and certainly i do the research but the story that's told is through my point of view you know what i the moments of their lives that i choose to portray Mm -hmm. and the way i choose to portray that in a very limited format you know i've got reduced to six pages yes reduced to six pages yes Mm -hmm. um and so you know it's they are documentaries here are real things that happen to these people but it's certainly filtered through a point of view Mm -hmm. Uh, and and i try to be as as real and faithful to their words and their stories where i can but that's not always possible but i i've never until the last 15 minutes thought of myself as a documentarian (laughs) but i see but i would because uh and here's why you're you say that except for i happen to know that so you say that about Hutzpah, which again you're saying you're not thinking of yourself as a documenta- mm-hmm. documentarian, but and I'm going to say this and I'm going to blow Wayne's mind. I know what one of Wayne's favorite documentaries is. It's called Safe Area Garageda, and it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, and, it's, yeah. and it's a fucking comic book that I know he loves. It's and a documentary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. But I, I just I, I hadn't framed it that way for myself because I, I do. It's that whole the medium we use. When I think of documentary, my mind immediately goes to film, and and that's not necessarily true. Obviously. I I mean, I think the thing that we're bringing up, too, is the thing that makes this so like leaky in terms of what what is a documentary and and what is and what is not is is this idea of like, how much do you want the audience to be aware of your presence as Mm -hmm. a documentarian and of your potential subjectivity? And is that. Uh, that honesty about that, the thing that then feels more true or re- real, like in our in our present world, uh, which I would argue is kind of fitting more in that, like the Michael Moore camp, which acknowledges yourself as an unreliable narrator and a biased narrator. And therefore, he sort of says, like, that is the thing that allows him to say or do whatever he wants, because he's already told you. It's very much the Jack Sparrow of like, because I'm dishonest, you can always trust that I will be dishonest. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there is when when Toby talks about this idea of the voice of God, we've almost now exist in this world of skepticism, where I would argue that we are more likely to question the films that present themselves as being omniscient truths. Uh, and so mm-hmm. maybe that for me feels like a Who's we? bigger, larger contemporary shift. Uh, a, do you a think we is everybody audience. or do you think we, but do you think we is, oh, so you think the entire I contemporary guess, audience, I'm not a, sure. A question for everyone then is, is this idea of, do you feel like the types of documentaries uh, as documentaries has, has changed for you? Um, or do you feel like uh, your opinions of what a documentary is has has not shifted after having Can this I experience. Your question? After, yeah, because uh, okay, so from what you're asking, like I, I have a perfect example because this is um in this one that I know Monica feels because I know what her syllabus is, and you mentioned it briefly. 
Tiger King, which I think a lot of people don't think of as a documentary. People are like, oh, it's just a reality show. But the reality show is a documentary, right? Like that's um, and particularly that one. I'd say Tiger King is absolutely a documentary. Not um, all, I would argue not all re- not reality, all shows, reality are, shows, are, yeah. shows are documentary. Uh, some of them are like if you watch uh, the first episode of The Real World ever, it looks a lot different than yeah. 2015 Real World. If you watch mm-hmm. the first Catfish it looks a lot different than MTV's Catfish. Um, right. But then there is also this weirdness of, if we want to talk about this at an incredibly meta level of like, is the thing that is now the documentary, the idea of how people behave when they are on reality television? Mm-hmm. Be- because well, that's what there, I'm is, at. there is an argument where like, yeah, and now it's just a giant social experiment in which every reality TV show is the circle in, in some regard, right? And in, mm-hmm. in which the thing that we are observing, which is a little bit of the question that I brought up in the call for comments of like, is drunk history a documentary about <laughs> what people sound like when they try and recall facts when they're drunk? Like, kinda, <laughs> maybe. Well, is it? Okay, let's, so let's talk is drunk about history, it. <laughs> if drunk history is not a doc if drunk history is not a documentary, then why why is Ken Burns? Because it's exactly the same show, except for one guy sounds snooty and the other guy sounds drunk. That's the difference, right? Like Ken Burns, <laughs> Drunk History is doing the Ken Burns documentary. That, that's what they're doing. They're just wasted. Um, and but like I'll take Tiger King as well, right? Like I think I think Tiger King did something brilliant. It captivated a nation, arguably a world. Part of that was because the pandemic happened to happen at exactly the right time. I get that, right? But I do think it was also a very well put together thing. That was this collective experience. And I had friends who wouldn't watch it. People were like, well, I don't like this because it makes everybody look horrible. Or um, I have one friend, my friend Barb, who um, I think listens to the show, um, but she she's from Florida and she likes Carol's Zoo. And she's I don't see how they could turn Joe Exotic into the good guy and her into the bad guy. I'm like, oh, Joe, not the good guy in this. Joe is funny. No. But he is not. <laughs> good yeah. Like no one's a good person in Tiger King. Does that mean that they're all horrible people in real life? Not necessarily. Necessarily. It means that that's the take that the film makes. And I think there's some level of people who still expect documentaries to be news in a way that I don't think any of us on the show today look at them that way. Like we're looking at what compelling thing do you what's your take on this story? Like, uh, Toby, you said there are like six documentaries about the GameStop event that came out within a month of each other. This was I mean, it seems like forever ago. GameStop, that was like three months ago. So like these are like super rushed, right? But like you guys did you guys did your take and like uh, other people did their takes and same thing happened with Fire Festival. Here are two different takes on Fire Festival. Here are, you know, that's what they're doing with these docs. I I don't know what regular people look for. I don't know how much people think that documentaries are the truth anymore. Well, it's funny yeah. that you mentioned the news though, because yeah. Think about the news and mm-hmm. where are you getting your news from, right? And CNN, that matters. CNN, Fox, or Democracy Now, right? Right. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, a, I'm a bit lefty, right? So I listen mm-hmm. to Democracy Now. But you know it's not accurate. I mean, not 100% accurate, right? They're, they have a take. That's the entire point, they have right? They a take, <laughs> yes. as does everyone on Earth. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it is just an interesting way of, of looking at it because whatever ends up on the cutting room for, floor, like what do you choose to focus on, right? At the very basic level, even if you're trying to like, I think, I don't know if you even know the show Democracy Now, but- I do. Uh, Okay, excellent. Yeah, so I'm a news junkie. I, yes, I'm, I, I'm aware. So, so the wonderful 
icon of truth, uh, <laughs> but Amy Goodman, you know, she sits there and um, rattles off the headlines for 13 minutes and presents this kind of like, just her presentation is this very like no frills, like here's what's going on around the world. And it's, it's like, tends to be pretty bleak. At least that's how my brain processes what she tells me about what's going on around the world um, and, mm-hmm. and kind of unfiltered and, um, you know, focusing on marginalized voices and stories that you're not going to hear from other sources who are just choosing Mm -hmm. to focus on, you know, it's just a matter of what lends your brain to things. What are you focusing on? What's hitting the the cutting room floor? And I think Toby can kind of speak to that too, right? Like when you decide something is not worthy of incorporating in that, you know, two hour cut, Mm -hmm. that omission is part of your point of view. Mm-hmm. For sure, it's, yeah. The omission is definitely a point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say, you know, like I, I'm a big believer that th- there's no such thing as like the end of truth or something. You know, there's certain factors that have really contributed to the erosion of truth, and especially um, in certain, you know, uh, uh, politically biased news shows being sort of the, uh, you know, the ultimate, uh, I think, catalyst to then the, the internet. Uh, truth problem that followed, um, but I would I would argue there's truth now as there always has been truth, right? I think there are certain subjects where I would be very confident having Morgan Freeman narrate with oh, sure, sure. certainty, and there's other um, subjects where I'd be like, I really don't think that an all-knowing narrator is going to be truthful in that sense. So, um, but but yeah, you know, it's it's a narrator would have been weird. I mean, a a true narrator would have been weird in and I've only seen one of Julie's films, but in Ask Me Six Love, that would have been bizarre. Yeah. You know, it's not like to have a voice of God. There's no voice of God. The voice of God, to the extent that there is one, is David. Yeah, exactly. There's always I think you make a very conscious choice over how you transport truth or factuality through Mm -hmm. the documentary form. Right. And there's uh, for sure a gradient or maybe even, you know, whether it's just one dimension uh, of complete truthfulness and objectivity over to completely manufactured, right? Many reality shows are very manufactured. Some mm-hmm. of the reality shows, they do tell a great truth about human nature that uh, some documentaries might never get to because the um, reality shows push people to their brink. Um, <laughs> and that reveals another kind of truth, right? So I think it's oftentimes as a sophisticated audience member, and that's, I think, where a lot of the sort of maybe inequity issue lies, right? Like about media literacy, as a sophisticated audience member, you make a choice over how biased or unbiased the information is that you're going to take in, right? Whether you're going to watch Democracy Now! or whether you're going to watch the BBC or whether you're going to watch Fox News or CNN or whatever it may be, right? So one of the things that I like for my own media diet kind of things, I like to at least be aware of the bias that each individual source will deliver to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love these, you know, sort of triangle charts where you see where each of the news sources are and their own yes. sort of political and financial, you know, socially liberal, financially conservative. Mm-hmm. Adfonte's yeah. Media is really good at that. I, I should link that in the show notes. Yeah. So so I, I love using tools like this to just make myself aware. Okay, that's kind of the bias that this thing will bring to the table, right? You watch Gaming Wall Street, you can look me up and be like, okay, what bias does this guy have? What bias mm-hmm. do the producers have, right? And because the, uh, every documentary is going to be some product of bias of the individual participants that make the documentary and that have sort of creative control over it. Um, and there, 
And sometimes that bias is not conscious at all, right? It is only subjective, sort of a gut feeling where you're like, oh, I have a gut feeling that this is true, that this is right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's um, that you intentionally want to sway somebody in a way that might just be that that's been your upbringing, right? So some of our subjects, they would always call investors by a male pronoun. I'm like, look, there's a lot of women investing. It might be a male-dominated sphere, but mm-hmm. I have the bias that I can see the women investing and see them equally as important in the, the language that we choose. So I tried to have as much they as possible so that it wasn't gender specific mm-hmm. when we talked about retail investors. For example, you know, that's just like a small thing where both my unconscious and my conscious bias will come in and then take um influence the way that I present the information without ever saying anything wrong or right. It's all about just, um, or without shaping uh, the truth value. And it's more about uh, extending or compressing the amount of truth that you can deliver per minute, if you will. Mm-hmm. So, okay. I guess this, so I guess this leads me to want to ask about uh, the multiplicity and the consumption. Um, this idea of like, is there someone out there actually watching uh, all nine of the wall street uh-huh. documentaries like <laughs> did people really sit down and watch the the like dramatic narrative version of tiger king um like it, yeah why, why is there did. this need to to have this many i i because it feels like like as a kid i remember when Finding Nemo and Shark Tale came out at the same time, and there was this like, <laughs> you, you gotta pick There's one. You know, do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> we're only gonna be interested in one fish movie. There was A Bug's Life and Ants. You pick one. And, we, we, and I we did a whole like, we did a whole episode about this before you before you were on the show. So we we had a whole, we had a whole episode where we talked about parallel narratives, like your A Bug Life versus Ants, Tombstone versus The White Herb Story. We we did we we did talk about this at one point, and yeah. <laughs> The drunk I, I, history I versus the Ken Burns, but but yeah. in this like in the streaming and in this idea that like one of these might reveal something new that you hadn't considered, that therefore it gives you a greater perception of truth than you had before. But I also feel like there's a part of me that's like kind of tired, and it also feels like kind of especially when I think about like the Britney Spears drama. Or and all of the sort of subsequent films, like the the Britney Murphy one that came after, like mm-hmm. they feel very like exploitive of these subjects by the sheer quantity of how much you're choosing to dive into them, and which is also to say, like, did we need? the dramatic narrativizations of like, did we need HBO's The Staircase? Wasn't The Staircase enough? What what is the fascination to need? the moreness of it because i don't believe that everyone is watching both finding nemo and shark tale i think we picked one <laughs> yeah, so i would say there's a lot of layers to it and uh, not every single case is the same they're all different in the case i can speak specifically to the gamestop one because i was doing a lot of industrial espionage uh during the making of hours <laughs> knowing that there was so many others doing the same thing uh so we try to always figure out what's their angle. Like, why are they making their doc? Who's making it, right? Like, what was the thing that they made last? How is it going to be similar or different from that? Um, and so we speculated a lot on what the other filmmakers were doing. Um, that was really, you know, that the key word here is market inefficiency. 
Um, mm-hmm. Not all documentarians share the same brain. So some have the same desire to t- tell the same story at the same moment. And they do independently find different buyers or potential supporters for the project. It gets kickstarted and then there's the only way out is for it. Uh, you can't just end it and like throw away the investment. So um, in that sense, uh, there was a few that actually stopped filming because of the competition. There was some that um, halted filming and uh, lost funding because of the competition. And the knowledge that competition will change the outcome, it's a little bit like Heisen, uh, not Heisenberg, uh, um, like the, uh, um, the, what it calls in, Heisenberg's so the Heisenberg's like uh, um, a principle that you can't quite tell the position of uh, yeah. an atom, right, mm-hmm. or of a photon. Um, spin of a quark, actually, but yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, spin of a quark. So it's it's similar to that, right? The observation of the thing itself changes the thing itself, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, when you have somebody peeing on your turf and they say, "Hey, I'm also making a documentary about the same subject as you do." By the way, I'm a lot more more powerful than you that changes your evaluation of whether this is still a good idea or not right and so some players were very well aware that it would cause that and they made sure that they peed on your turf early so that <laughs> you'd either be scared into submission or you would at least run away from whatever angle they might be having right and so uh few people peed on the turf and then disappeared because they ended up actually never making their documentary and there was no second press release that said by the way we're no longer doing this i had to find this out through some back back rooms and stuff um so mm-hmm. all that to say uh when you have multiple projects going on at the same time there's so many examples in narrative film you know white house down and uh another mm-hmm. one about the white house being attacked all at the same time you're like how in the world is this possible oh, this olympus could- has fallen yeah, for so people yeah. should check people people should go back and check out episode 68 of this show parallel media where we went into in depth on parallel on parallel versions of the same film coming out um showgirls and 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 striptease came out at the same time uh deep impact and armageddon there, there's a whole bunch of these yeah <laughs> yeah it's, it's very strange and it's, it's different for every single thing but i know that in the case of the GameStop things there was a number one headline that happened there was only two productions that started prior actually there was three productions that started prior to the number one headline coming out so mm-hmm. it was um uh, I don't need to go into too much detail, but those three all pursued a story that they found was niche and interesting and was kind of worthy of examining all around the world of Wall Street bets. Once mm-hmm. the number one headline came out, which was about GameStop and the role that Wall Street bets played in that, every single one of them pivoted towards the role of Wall Street bets with GameStop. But right. then a bunch of big documentary companies came and said, look, we're going to make a doc about this whole GameStop thing. So now all these early pioneers were either forced with capitulation or continue but you know risk starvation down the line mm-hmm. uh, all of us actually kept going so the early pioneers all kept going um and some of these second uh generation people that came on some of them quit some of them changed their stuff some of them collided with each other and ended up running out of subjects because they had too much crossovers there's a whole bunch of mess take away it's a terrible idea to do a documentary at the same time as somebody else is doing the same documentary <laughs> um, you are inviting a lot of headache into your life and the only reason that we kept going was because we had a deep um and i think somewhat justified belief that we had a much better handle on the story than anybody else <laughs> that's awesome so we resolved nothing right <laughs> again, <laughs> again yeah <laughs> is there ever <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know. I mean, always, we should watch, watch documentaries, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm kind of curious about one thing, um, just because, you know, we've been talking about this and we've we've very much focused on on Julie's work and Toby's work as though they're the only ones. But like, do people have favorite documentaries? Like if you had to recommend one, what would it be other than the ones that, you know, you've made? Sure. Um, yeah. So I already mentioned like my all time favorite, which is The Devil and Daniel Johnston by Jeff Furzig, which is a 2005 film. So everyone should see that about the musician Daniel Johnston. And more recently, if you haven't seen it already, do yourself a favor and see 13th, uh, Ava DuVernay's film uh, mm-hmm. about, you know, explaining how the U.S. became the land of racist mass incarceration. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, there's a lot um you can find my uh recommendations on letterbox under my full name um, <laughs> and i have all sorts of recommendations for docs but stuff that people might have not seen enough or that uh might be a little bit uh sort of more niche if you will um i think there's some incredible financial fraud documentaries that i just absolutely love um, like betting on zero or sour grapes or um, McMillions. Uh, those are oh, really fantastic on financial fraud. Um, but there's one that I think the academics in the audience will truly enjoy. And that is the pervert's guide to ideology, which I think is the best portrayal <laughs> of Slavoj ever. Uh, and it's so fucking funny and stupid. And I watched yeah. it when I was at Berkeley and I was like, wow, this is like the perfect collision of doing really dumb shit and being like super smart. So I can highly recommend that. Monica. Uh, I'm going to go for three. Uh, The documentary that I think should be sort of required viewing from a social history perspective is uh, Jenny Livingston's Paris is Burning. Uh, It's free Mm -hmm. on YouTube, which means you have no excuse not to go watch it. Uh, I would say uh, a documentary that I personally love that made me think differently about documentaries uh, was actually Banksy's exit through the gift shop. Uh, I think that it is uh, a very interesting way to take what everyone's classical conception of a archival footage history of something documentary and turn it on its head to show clear authorship. Uh, I think it's really funny. I think it's a great film. Uh, I also want to bring up that maybe my favorite documentary that I have seen in the past 10 years is the uh, QAnon documentary on HBO. Uh, It's a a docu-series about QAnon and who they believe Q is. And uh, every time I seem to mention this documentary to people, they seem to have not seen it. And they think that I am a QAnon believer or supporter, (laughs) which is the strangest social interaction I've ever had to be like, what part of you? that I gave off QAnon vibes, which is perhaps a different episode all on its own. Um, But at the same time, it's really showing me how few people have actually seen the QAnon documentary. And it's so good and so interesting uh, when you think about the idea of internet culture and how uh, subculture spreads through the internet. Um, and, and it's just an absolutely fascinating uh, study of human behavior to me. So those are my awesome. recommendations. I can also, by the way, just quickly chiming in, uh, recommend the QAnon doc. Uh, I liked it so much that most of our post-production staff was actually stolen from the Q into the documentary. <laughs> because our documentary was also about internet culture and it was also 
all about a conspiracy theory. Unlike QAnon, ours actually turned out to be partially true. Um, <laughs> and I really like that kind of stuff. So we uh, we borrowed a few of the editors, assistant editors, and star producers. That's awesome, Wayne. I'm gonna be terrible with this. I like. I feel like I watch a lot of documentaries, but when you ask this, my mind just kind of blanks out. Uh, I, I tend to watch more like the personal stuff this goes in the music thing just i watch mm -hmm. music documentaries you know about bands and mm -hmm. and i i like the process of, of that stuff um i assumed you were going to do summer of soul yeah yeah that that was one that came to mind because i recommended that last year i thought summer of soul was just really mm -hmm. kind of brilliant so good um, yeah so good i i'm gonna and bringing this up in, in this use some tragedy one of my favorite um musicians is nick cave and a few years ago, one of his twin sons fell off of a cliff and died while he was in the process of writing and recording an album. And uh, there's a documentary called Once More With Feeling that is him continuing mm -hmm. to work on that album while dealing with his grief. Mm -hmm. um, it's amazing um, just to watch he and his wife and family and friends say dealing with the grief of this tragic loss, as well as producing art in the midst of that as a way of healing and, and whatever. Um, and this comes to mind because on the Internet today, one of his sons from a previous marriage died mm. like yesterday. So this is oh, breaking gosh. news. Um, yeah. And so it's just, yeah, it's so he's he's going through this again. So not to end this entire show on this horrible down note, but that documentary, that previous documentary came to mind because of that news breaking today. And it's, I mean, it's really powerful, whether you're a fan of of his music or not it's powerful as an insight into how art can help you work through grief um so i, I find that one really very powerful um so yeah there, i maybe i'll stop there i just can't think of anything else that, that really really stands out to me at the moment so i'll give a couple i watch so many of these um like i I love the idea that, you know, Netflix just thinks that I want to watch tons of documentaries because I do. So I'll put them on <laughs> a lot of times. Um, but just some of my favorites that sort of run the gamut uh, just for for as comic fans, which I know a lot of our listeners are. There's one called Sex in the Comics, comics with an with an X, C-O-M-I-X. Very, very good. Talks about history of erotica in comics and some of the more innovative people working today and working in the past. And you see absolutely delightful interviews with Aileen Minsky and R. Crumb, who are very, very old now and just the most adorable couple ever. <laughs> <laughs> like there. I would also recommend, you know, another of my favorites because of, you know, what I do beyond the mat, the wrestling documentary. I mentioned earlier when we were kings, which is uh, about the rumble in the jungle. It's about Muhammad Ali. So I like, you know, these sort of sports documentaries that kind of work together. I like the summer of soul thing as well as um, the Woodstock documentary that came out, um, you know, quite some time ago <laughs> back then. I, I think they, those work together. And then I wanted to mention a couple others that I thought maybe we might talk about today, but we didn't. One was hoop dreams, which is absolutely brilliant. One of the best movies ever made. And then finally, there's the film Mating Habits of the Earthbound Human, which is not exactly a documentary in that it's not true. It is a fictional documentary, but it is a documentary um, wherein aliens watch a couple fall in love and eventually get married and have a baby. Um, the, the couple is played by Carmen Electra and I think Sean Astin. It's been a while since I watched it. And it's essentially 
watching a nature documentary um and an alien watches a couple meet at a at a nightclub start dating fall in love and it tries to reference how people behave with no understanding of what's really going on so it's just like look at so so it's the kinds of assumptions that we make when we're just you know making a documentary and the nature of truth if we just like sort of if you were to observe animals mating and you're like oh um this is part of the mating ritual um the the woman has put on war paint in order to um show that she is willing to battle the man and he means makeup you know and it's just it's so brilliant it's such a good thing um so i would recommend that so but anyway lots of documentaries to watch there's no shortage of them oh my god i could i could probably do this forever um with any top 10 you know how i'll change my mind like five minutes after this like when i'm editing this later i'm like oh why the hell did i not say in search of steve ditko Uh, (laughs) so um but i want to thank julie and toby for joining us thank you so much this was great thanks for having Uh, us julie where can people find out more about your work good question um i have a website and it's juliesokolo.com and all my projects are there and many short films to watch for free as well awesome and Toby? Um, well, you can uh, see uh, Gaming Wall Street on HBO Max uh, for the next 10 years roundabout. Uh, so it won't <laughs> go away, but uh, watch it sooner than later. <laughs> um, and then you can see more about the work that we do at our production company, Prodigium Pictures at prodigium-pictures.com. You can find me on social under my full name, Tobias, and then D-E-M-L. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're interested, if you're a filmmaker yourself by any chance, and you're like, hey, I really like this whole documentary stuff and this ethics stuff. And I kind of want to figure out like, how do I do the right thing with this power given to me vested by the power of the camera? Um, We have a a little sort of nonprofit um, trade association that we call SAE Society. um, uh, That uh, My husband is also a part of. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. A bunch of the people here are familiar with. So I highly recommend check out SAE Society. There's a lot of resources on there. There's a whole ecosystem, organizations that are working in that space and making both fictional and documentary films that are meant to uh, turn the world into a better place through using entertainment plus truth. Awesome. And Monica Marvelous. Uh, you can find me on Instagram or on Twitter. That's uh, at Monica Marvelous. But on Instagram, that's L-O-U-S. And on Twitter, that's L-O-U-X. Because what is and... Bruce really? <laughs> <laughs> and Wayne. You can find me here. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find me in Julie's documentary. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's good. Uh, and you can reach out to Bob, which is, again, yeah. a documentary, which I'm yeah. surprised you never thought of it that way. Um, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, all the places, always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show, all those same places, at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com, where you can comment on this or any other show, and you can find out what we're talking about next week, which I'm not actually sure what that is yet. You know, there'll be a call for comments that will give you a topic, and you can give us your thoughts you can pitch yourself as a guest you can pitch ideas to us what do you want us to research and talk about and have shows about that would always be interesting to know if you enjoy the show and we certainly hope you do then please subscribe to us on itunes or stitcher or spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from and do us a favor leave us a five-star review if you leave us a five-star review especially on itunes Apple podcast that boosts the algorithm makes us more popular really helps us out and then maybe someone make a documentary about us and like hey there's a five-star review for this people for these people on this podcast let's Let's follow them around for 
you know, weeks. And Hannah will hate us so much and be awesome. <laughs> She's not here today. <laughs> so <laughs> it would be great. Um, but we would really appreciate it if you leave us a five-star review and check out both Julie and Toby's work. Again, I've seen all the films. They're very good. You should see them. So I would once again like to thank both of you guys for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks like for to, having us. Yeah. yeah, thanks for having us. I'd like to thank Maximilian of Thought for Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.